This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. So you want our place go? Uh, sure. I, I would like to make Ruby scripting great again. <laughs> oh, that's we're, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, now when this hat gets too worn out, we know exactly what to replace it with. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Terrence. Hi. <laughs> Joined by Terrence Lee from the Ruby Experience team on Heroku. How you doing? How's your conference been? It's been pretty good. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the first slot after the keynote, so I got to you know get that out of the way really quickly. Um, and my talk seemed to be pretty well received, so I was pretty happy with that. Seeing that I finished my slides at eight in the morning before my talk, so <laughs> that's how it always goes, right? Feels pretty good. <laughs> I always like that you dress like exceptionally well when you're giving a talk. Yeah, so I actually got that from Aaron uh, uh, before my first conference talk ever at, uh, what was that drinking conference uh, that Kobe and friends do, and Josh, those guys, Ruby on Ales. Mm. Uh, it was like 2012 or something. Uh, I was like super nervous because I'm not very good at public speaking, and like definitely like when I was a kid, I was super shy in school too about public presentations, but he was like, oh yeah, I dress up and it's the reason I do is because it allows me to get out of character of like actually being the person in front of the stage. Hmm. And so before that talk, I went and like bought a speaking outfit. And so that's the same speaking outfit that I've bought since 2012. And then you have the same hat always, regardless of the speaking well, outfit. Well, the, the hat is like... 10 plus years old so personal yeah. brand at this point yeah I, I even have stickers that i can hand out so all right see i feel like i feel like this is a, like a, a brotherly thing that we've always had in common although i could not make a sticker out of my hat because it would just be too generic well i feel like that's not a common hat in the ruby community though so True. i saw a guy here earlier i've been very confused because he's also tall and skinny and he's wearing a fedora and it's a it's a different fedora than yours, but it's enough to like I see them in the, I see them in the hallway. I'm like, oh, there's Sean, and then I'm like, oh. doesn't he know you, you that hat's already go claimed? With the, the Segway, the Segway sticker. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> could work. Be a pretty good one. Yeah, I never have it at conferences though. I've, I've been so happy to have it this time because like it's such a big convention center, and I can actually get around with people at a normal speed. Well, you <laughs> just have to like make it part of your talk regimen. You just like put slide of. Of the Segway? Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, you can like, make it your thing. Could work. I have a good picture of me walking my dog on it. That's always a funny <laughs> one. But yeah, hats. I think hats make a good personal brand. All right. <laughs> so your talk was on Kafka. And I really like the slide where you're like, and this is what it is. In the beginning, you show like the definition from the website. And it's like, this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so Kafka is a project built from Scala. And uh, I was talking to my friend Joe, who works with me at Heroku, and he he kind of owns the Java experience stuff, like basically the Java analysis to like Richard and I. And he was telling me like the Scala community is very like that about everything. <laughs> so, you know, you go and read this documentation and, and even talking to some of the Kafka folks uh, who have been doing stuff at Heroku, it's just like you talk to them and you're just like, man, this just sounds like a lot of buzzwords. I literally have no idea what you're saying. And you have to like sit and like think about it uh, for a long time. And so I think like that was like, like, like if I was to retitle the talk, it would be Kafka for Dummies because that's really what I wanted <laughs> when I was like trying to pick it up. Right. 
the example you gave was basically using a log digester, right? Something that digests routing logs from Heroku, right? Yep. Um, so that's the type of thing you would suggest using something like that for? Yeah, I mean, I think logs are convenient and easy, and it's a common one for just like any type of like stream data. The reason you would pick Kafka would be for like, like I was saying, like the high throughput, the ability to process like hundreds of thousands to millions of messages like a second with at that kind of scale, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and you don't even need like a large cluster to even do that. Um, so having like this durable store that can have all these records and then at your own pace have consumers that can then go through and digest it. And, and the nice thing is like, unlike a queue, like you can have multiple consumers doing different things that can process the same data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having a log and being able to, and, and the example I had was like generating metrics. So you'd have a, th- a consumer that would go in like, based on these logs, like generate metrics about the routes that you're having. Um, but then you can have a totally different consumer group that goes through and does something completely analogous, unrelated, and you don't have to stuff it in the same worker. You can basically like separate the roles out and scale them independently of like, maybe the metrics thing is like way more expensive to like actually calculate like the standard deviation, all these other statistics that you want. You want like these rolling windows with like offsets that seek based off of like, maybe like on a weekly basis or something. And the replay service that I have is like much simpler so like you wouldn't necessarily need nearly as many consumers but you want to be able to process the whole thing and not have to like have a single job or whatever like you to emulate this a similar thing in like sidekick or something right okay um so it gives you that kind of flexibility to kind of break things out which is really nice and when i was talking with yehuda about it they use it heavily at skylight to do all their uh, metric stuff like to feed it in before it gets into cassandra and one of the really nice things is like if if the only time they ever lose data is like if their http front end goes down Kafka pretty much never goes down for them and even if like stuff on the back end or whatever like crashes which can happen like any time it's like not an instant or it's not an outage it's not a problem for them at all um so you basically like go through and before you commit to Cassandra, you have like the starting offset of like when you're going to do something and then you have the ending offset and then you basically like go through and calculate whatever metrics you need to for that thing and then upload it into Cassandra for that time series in the bucket. And if any point that fails during that time, you know the last offset because you haven't committed to Kafka when you've done it. So like it's really does not matter at all like if something crashes or something bad happens and and having that kind of durability is really nice, uh, and I think that's a thing that's hugely missing from a lot of queuing things we've done in the Ruby ecosystem. Hmm. So I have a question for you. Yes. Is Heroku Kafka web scale? Uh, I feel like this is a trick question. No, no. Is, is Heroku Kafka web scale? Yes. Uh, as in, like, is it like Mongo and loses a bunch of data? That could be your definition. I don't uh, know. It's It's just like... I, well, while I agree with all of these things, it also feels like it's very easy for this to turn into these sort of things to turn into buzzwords. Sure. Like durability is, I mean, don't get me wrong. If there's anything that should be a buzzword, durability is probably a really, really good buzzword for us to be buzzing about. But like, do that many applications have a t- the sort of scale that is needed for something like Kafka? Um, I mean, if you're doing any like transactional data, uh, like the stock tracker example, or if you're like, living social or something and you you have to do like credit card transactions i feel like durability matters a lot even if you aren't doing it at scale right right uh so those things matter and you you are making trade-offs right like so in one of my slides it probably isn't clear until you think about it more 
but it's in at least once delivery. So you kind of have this like transactional thing where it's like you can get a message more than once, right? Like you can process it more than once and kind of on the consumer end, you have to have something on the other end that's like, well, I've already seen this message. Right. Well, I have to do this thing. And, it, and, and those are the guarantees that you're trading off is that you don't really have this like kind of system where it's like, oh yes, like I've already had this thing in this set, right? Like, right. And like that stuff you have to build in and those are trade-offs you have to make, but sure. at the cost of something that has more throughput, right? Right. Like there's more process and flow when you're doing stuff in the AMQP and they provide different guarantees that potentially can be more convenient, right? Yeah. I mean, it actually does sound like the, the, the downside that you've described with Kafka doesn't actually sound that hard to work around either. For most cases, like for the kinds of cases where you, where you would be using a tool like Kafka. Right. So imagine if we were talking about this credit card transaction thing, like say you're storing basically like every credit card event transaction in your Rails app um, in the controller and you're pushing it through. And for some reason, like it, it like buffered it twice and like it went through again, right? And on the consumer side, you probably want to actually check to make sure that this thing happened and you're not repeating it. You couldn't just like blindly be like, oh yeah, every event thing, I'm just going to go through and charge it, right? Right. Um, and so... You, you do have to do, like, a little more work on the other side. Sure. Probably should be if you're processing credit cards, though. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not familiar with the world where I need that much scale. So, like, when you first said it's kind of, it's, it differs from a queue. Like, so my, I was thinking, like, AMQP, RabbitMQ, something like that. The way you said it differed was mostly in that you could have multiple consumers. So those things, like, you pick something off the queue and it's gone, right? Right. Okay, and this you can have, like you said, if you have different, something that needs to be fast, you can have something like process that really quickly, but then have some other consumer process it. Right. I I guess a good way to think about it, unlike, so it is a queue-ish thing, but it's also, it's really like down at the bottom, like a, a, a right append only log that's immutable. Um, So, you know, with a log, you can always rewind back in time and kind of reread it, but you can't change like the order of history in the log. Um, Mm -hmm. And with a queue, it's kind of like when you pop something off the queue, it's gone. Right. Right. And so, that's really like the difference of how you would look at something like Kafka versus like an AMQP. And so if you pop it off the queue, I'm trying to add up, I'm trying to tie all these things together. So if you had popped it off the queue and then the, the thing that popped it off the queue dies, that's lost in that, in that circumstance, right? Yes. Like okay. in, in the psychic example, if you popped it off the queue, like one, one of the things that has been tough with any Redis back worker that we have tried to solve when I was working on rescue and other things when we were doing the rewrite of things that never ship was that it's really hard to kind of have that durability story if the data store itself does not have it. And the reason is because like once it's popped off the queue, it's gone from the data store and there's no like transactional thing. Like you, you need to have basically a separate other queue that you put it on. That's like, Oh, I popped this off the queue and I'm working on it. And then what happens when it dies? Uh, so the nice thing in Kafka is like you can move the offset, but that record is still there. So you can always rewind mm-hmm. back in right. time. So you, you mentioned that, that Kafka, like, the, the durability of the data store itself. Is Kafka, like, if the power goes out, um, does Kafka lose stuff? Uh, like, if Kafka goes down? Right. Uh, so if Kafka goes down, obviously you can't, it, like, writes stuff to disk. Okay. So, like, it's going to be there. And then also on the client side, as long as the clients are still up, it will, they will buffer the messages up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, you can run out of buffer, but, you know, when it comes back, they will then send stuff. Okay. Do those things? Yeah. Now I'm now I have a better picture of how yeah. these compare to things the, that I have used in the past. So one cool. one of the things that was tricky for me when I first started learning about Kafka was like, oh, this is great. It's like this ordered log. I can just keep everything. Um, and one thing you you have to keep in mind is that it's actually 
you only retain data for a certain amount of time. And I probably didn't say that enough in my talk, but usually there's like some type of compaction schedule where uh, you will basically like compact the logs after a certain amount of time because you can't have an infinite data store, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a common thing would be like, oh, I'm going to only store things for like a week or two days or some time period or a certain number of messages before we start calling things off on the other end. Um, or you can have some other retention strategy. Makes sense. Cool. So um, Kafka is difficult. Like, so I know, I know, I know the value proposition for Heroku Kafka, which I guess we should mention that that is the reason that you were given the talk. Oh, yeah. Right? So I was giving the talk because Heroku had uh, last week at Kafka Summit announced a public beta for Kafka. Even though it's public beta, it is like early access, so you do need to sign a, sign up on a waiting list uh, to get in, um, and we're slowly letting people in because we want to ensure that the experience of the people that are coming in get a good experience and we want to scale it in an appropriate way because it is a new data service that does require multiple nodes to run all these things and like we want to make sure it's not bad for people who are using it. And and this is all because like Kafka is typically very hard to set up and deploy yourself, right? Yeah, well, it's notoriously, especially for someone who's not in the JVM ecosystem, it's notoriously known to not be easy to operate. Um, if you read a lot of stuff like on the internet about Kafka, they're like, oh man, Kafka's great, but like when we actually ran in production, it was kind of a pain in the butt. Right. Um, and so th those are definitely the things that we are going to be, we are wary about and like want to make sure we're doing the right things. We have the right things in place as we kind of grow our service there. Um, so my question is, um, what about development mode? <laughs> what about development mode? Like, do, do you still have to set up, get, deal with all that to get Kafka set up locally? Uh, like for setting up locally in my demo app, I was able to easily orchestrate some stuff with Docker. Um, and I think Docker makes it much easier to kind of do these things. But at the same time, in the beta, you can probably just have Heroku create like a beta dev. There's like a development plan, sure. and you can use the development plan and probably just, if you're okay connecting over the internet to do it, um, you can go and do that instead. So what you're saying is you hate it when I work on airplanes. Uh, <laughs> but you can use your Docker instance at that point. Yeah, you sure. I feel like Docker, Docker is going to be the answer to everything that's like, this is an onerous dependency to have locally. It's like, yeah. okay, uh, Docker. Yeah, I mean, and even setting it up locally, like, I don't think the install for development is actually that hard. It's like, you have to have the JVM, obviously, because it's built in Scala, and you have to download Kafka, and then you just have to boot up Zookeeper, which does, you know, all the distributed lock configuration management stuff, and mm -hmm. you have to boot up Kafka, and that's it. And they have, like, pre-built config files as like quick start stuff to kind of just get up and running really quickly. So I, I built a Docker image uh, myself for when I was doing the demo to, to kind of do all that. And it didn't take that long to like kind of just get it up and running. Okay. Uh, so I don't think it, like even if you didn't want to do Docker stuff, like it's not a huge pain to kind of do it. Sure. Well, assuming I, you have the JVM. Locally. See, it's funny. Like I, I, I like I hear people talk about how Docker solves a lot of problems. I don't actually know how to use Docker. Like I've used it, but I don't actually really know what I'm doing most of the time. Why well, I think that's the the secret is that no one really knows what they're doing with Docker. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that's only kind of true. Uh, like I think containers as an idea are really cool. Um, obviously, at Heroku, we've been doing containers since. I, I don't know when we started using since, containers. Since Those before were, containers were cool. <laughs> yeah, but definitely before like I even started at Heroku, they were doing containers, and I just passed my like six-year mark at Heroku, so it's been over six years. 
and just the idea of like this dev prod parity is like you know kind of like the holy grail i think everyone wants to hit yes and uh docker's interesting in the sense that it was like really one of the first open source projects that made it possible to kind of write out a file that kind of describes of how you would set a container up right sure and you know like it was not really difficult to kind of write a docker file out and it was a way to you know like similarly with like gem file and other things it's a way to describe and and set up like the dependencies of your application and that's i think what makes docker really great and attractive and they've kind of built this entire ecosystem infrastructure around it yeah but the tricky side of that is that containers also make it kind of hard in certain ways to do development and things, right? Like the way Docker does its layered file system caching stuff, it can be very difficult to kind of have that same development workflow if what you have to do is basically build a new Docker container image every time you change a line of code, right? Right. Like that's a pretty terrible dev experience. And in addition to that, like even simple things like I've changed. I've added a new gem to my gem file. Now I've basically busted my entire like bundler cache, and I have to reinstall everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank God, like we aren't developing stuff like in Node or NPM because that even takes longer, <laughs> right? So, and hopefully you aren't also using Bower at the same time. And so, right. like you know, it's like a, this cascading effect. Um, and I've actually been. So I, I think it's cool. Like, like I think what we'll see eventually is like there's going to be a development workflow with uh, some container solution, whether that's Docker or something else. Um, I don't know if Docker is going to win at the end of the day, but I think containers are kind of here to stay. Yeah. For the long term, and then there's going to be like, I'm going to convert this thing into a production build thing because the impedance of like the productivity of like having to do all of these steps, I think, really hurts like what makes using things like Ruby great, right? Right. Is that you have that fast iterative flow. That's where, like, we had a, I had a project that I was on where we had a Docker set up, and it was just a basic Ruby app. There was no, it was just like, let's do this so that we don't have any issues setting up Copybar or WebKit or whatever. <laughs> it was more just like a, uh, let's try this Docker thing and see how it works out. And Joe Ferris, our CTO, runs on Linux, liked it. It had some shortcomings for him, but it had significant shortcomings for me on OS 10, where like you actually have to go. There's no at the time there was no native no native containers right. for Docker on OS 10, so you had to install VirtualBox and it would boot up that VM and it was like it was slow. And then like things happen where like I'm used to doing binding.pry and that doesn't actually work in my tests anymore because it's not local anymore. Or like save an open screenshot in the middle of a test that doesn't work anymore. So I'm curious to see. They recently announced Docker recently announced like. I don't know, maybe a month ago. All um, native all the time. Yeah, of nat- like native containers on OS 10, native containers on uh, Windows. Windows. Yeah. And that'll that's in like an invite-only beta. I know uh, Josh Clayton, who we work with, has been trying out the... He got invited to the Mac beta or OS 10 beta, and um, he's been liking that. So I think that might solve some of the problems. And then I think some of the development workflow problems would get solved if enough people started trying to use it in development, right? They would just look for ways, look for tools they could build to help make that development process a little better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm a little tainted because I don't run a Mac, and so I, I do run Linux. And yeah. so, like, the Docker experience, when it works, is actually pretty <laughs> decent. Um, and and some of the workflow for development that I've kind of been working around has been, like, you basically have a container that has the, I guess, like, Ruby and kind of all the dependencies that you want in your system so like for the stuff for the kafka stuff it was like i was running jruby and it was nice to basically be like oh hey if you want to run this thing you actually don't need to have 
Java or JRuby or Kafka or any of this stuff set up. You actually just need to have Docker and you can run it. And then basically what I do is I mount my local file system as a volume inside the thing. And then, so I actually do all my local editing with any native text editor, right? So I have Vim or whatever, and I'm making changes. And then I'm basically booting up like a bash shell inside Docker that I'm running bundle install and kind of all the other things. So everything's running inside the container um, and I'm running the server, which opens up a port that I can access locally. So Mm -hmm. I can go to my local web browser. I'm not stuck using curl or something inside of Docker. I can actually like do all these things and you can set up a workflow that actually feels really nice. And I, I've been pretty happy with that, but you basically have to like orchestrate and manually like build your own Docker composition of all these things right. um, by hand. Um, but I think there's, given some time, I feel like I can build some stuff around it to make it a much better experience. And potentially that's some stuff we'd like to explore more at Heroku for doing some of those things. Um, and I, I've been playing a lot with this workflow uh, actually in like, this other project of mine, MRuby CLI. And I guess to rewind, like MRuby C- so MRuby CLI is a project with the tagline, I guess, we just made up here of like making scripting and CLIs greater again for Ruby. And uh, what I mean by that is like, I feel like Ruby, like MRI itself, is moving towards a model where it needs to make certain trade offs between being a general purpose scripting language and being a good. VM for running long-running processes like Rails or any other API service or like a consumer group or something. And I feel like Java has made a lot of those trade-offs and it actually has benefited Java really well in the long run for running a large server. Like for instance, it actually allocates a ton of memory up front that it's not even using yet. So it doesn't have to allocate stuff during runtime, right? Mm-hmm. So you get better response time because you aren't allocating or trying to allocate more stuff on the heap like during the middle of like a Rails request, right? Mm-hmm. But of course that's like a terrible idea to do if you are a script, right? Like it's supposed to be small and fast and boot up time actually matters a lot. Did you um I think it's been a year or two now, but there was this pull request on the CLI for that PHP, uh, I think it was Composer. It was either the the CLI for their dependency management or it was the CLI for one of the web frameworks. But they saw a 30% improvement in runtime when they disabled garbage collection at the start of the script and just never re-enabled it. Uh, I did not see that, but I'm not surprised by that. That's not that like garbage collection is bad or anything. It's probably more an indicator of the VM that it was running in than anything about like, but I, I just thought that was a really, for a scripting thing, that was just a really hilarious pull request to me. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you would see so much performance gains in Ruby from doing something like that, right? Yeah, yeah we used to do that, and we did that on our T1D project we did years ago. We disabled garbage collection when we ran the tests. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, we did do that. We'll let the test run, and the process will end, and it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, there was, I mean, it was a tiny speed up, but it was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> just download more RAM. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is interesting, though, like, when we talk about containers and things like that, just to think about how far we've come in terms of caring about dev prod parity. Because, like, you know, back before Heroku was a thing, it was really, really common for Rails devs to use SQLite in development and then MySQL or Postgres in production. Yeah, that was actually a huge slog at Heroku. I was around during the time when we had a database product and like Postgres, it was like MySQL is the default for Rails. And it, it was, uh, I was actually on the support team initially when I joined Heroku. And one of the support ticks you would see would be like, 
well, why don't you support MySQL? Like, you would see that ticket, like, over and over again. Um, and I think uh, the stance we took eventually paid off. Like, it could have not, but, like, it has paid off in the end. And I feel like most people don't actually, by default, unless you're doing some legacy thing or there's a specific reason why you're picking MySQL, I feel like a lot of people pick Postgres now. Yeah. So I feel like we've gotten lucky in that sense. You're and, on the right side of that. History, yeah. history proved you out. Yeah. Well, and you, I mean, you guys don't not support MySQL, right? You just don't offer it as a specific product, but you could still use MySQL hosted somewhere else. Right, there are plugins or uh, whatever, add-ons, whatever they call them, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, you can obviously connect to anything on the internet, too, right. if right. you wanted to, but we don't natively support a MySQL product. And there was even discussions internally, like, does it make sense? Do we have to? Uh, especially as we started going to PHP, because... I think PHP and MySQL are tied super closely together too, yeah. like mm-hmm. historically. So, well, I appreciate I appreciate you guys shifting the needle on that because like Diesel does not have MySQL support, and I'm not planning on adding it. Somebody might do it as a third party thing, and that's fine. But to a certain extent, Heroku has some has some uh, credit to take in my not needing to write a MySQL adapter, <laughs> which I didn't want to do. So, let's go back to MRuby for a second because you yeah. brought it up. So, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, MRuby is an embeddable Ruby, and I and I guess like if you're familiar with languages like Lua, um, you can basically use it to be embedded inside of another language. So this is common like game development. Basically, like you write something some low, lower level language, and then you have an embeddable language like Lua to kind of handle some higher order bits that basically don't need necessarily that level of performance, and you can get away with writing something and not have to think about kind of the lower level details there. Or you see it in a thing like Nginx, right? Um, so there's like Lua and Nginx. So you can embed Lua inside of Nginx to kind of do the scripting instead of uh, when you feel like just writing stuff in Nginx.conf is not enough. Um, the alternative is you can write a C module, which is, of course, for a lot of people, probably a lot less fun. <laughs> um, and it's much more error prone, right? Like you could probably introduce a lot more problems that way. And there's actually an engine, an NGX MRuby thing as well, where you can, instead of using Lua, you can use MRuby and it has, it plugs into a lot of the similar hooks and things. Um, and they aren't quite on parity, like MRuby supports certain things that the Lua stuff doesn't, and the Lua stuff supports certain things that the MRuby doesn't. But you can basically use MRuby to kind of do this stuff. And I, I'm actually using it in kind of this static build pack that I've built for running um, static apps like kind of on the platform so uh the heroku dashboard actually uses this build pack to host uh our ember dashboard and whether they know it or not they're actually running ember in production which is kind of cool <laughs> and, and and this is just just to uh make sure I'm, uh, I'm clear this is not compiling ruby right when you have your binary like it you're just embedding the interpreter but it is still interpreted yes that's correct okay so like how does that compare to like at Thoughtbot, we're good at building things in Ruby because we have a lot of Ruby experience. But then when it comes time to turn something into a command line tool that's for like general purpose needs, um, kind of struggled with that. It's like, well, do we just write this in Go so that it, we can just have a binary that we ship? Or should we do something like traveling Ruby, which is like a traveling Ruby? You ship the Ruby along with the thing, right? Um, should we be looking at like MRuby instead? Is that Can we do everything that we'd want to, basically? Uh, so so I, I've actually started that a project called MRuby CLI and I've given a talk I think last year if you want like more details I guess uh, mm-hmm. as a listener and stuff mm-hmm. but we'll put a link um, to that in the show notes yeah but the whole point behind something like MRuby CLI was that 
uh, if you look at MRuby, the startup time is like three milliseconds to boot that interpreter versus like MRI without even using Bundler or anything um, is like 50 milliseconds or something. So you're talking about an order of magnitude speed difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that trade-off for a lot of CLI apps is probably good enough. If you're doing like a lot of computation other things in the CLI, you probably shouldn't pick something like MRuby because it's still Ruby at the end of the day, right? Like it's a VM that's being interpreted, like Sean said. But this whole project is about like being able to write a CLI in Ruby, compile it down to a binary, and then ship those binaries and have users run them. Right. And and that's the whole point of the project. Uh, and it's still really early. Like we have a lot of work we're trying to do, but kind of the core of what we've built is. We have basically this Docker image that you use that has all the C compilers you need, all of the cross-compiling tools for both OS X and Windows. So it basically just handles the Linux to Linux, Linux to Mac, Linux to Windows story, like all those compilers built in. And so you don't have to download, set up, or do any of that stuff. Um, you just use the Docker container. And we basically just mount your local app directory in, and we run the MRuby build process, which then goes through and compiles all that stuff for you. So you're, you end up with a binary because we're embedding MRuby in basically a small like C wrapper that pretty much just passes like argv into MRuby itself. Mm -hmm. So then inside of MRuby, you can actually just access it like you would as a method parameter, right? right. Um, and so the idea is that as a Rubyist, I can build a CLI without having to drop down to see if I really don't want to, and I can pull on the existing ecosystem of MRuby and kind of write a CLI that way. Yeah, that sounds interesting because like we have tools that we used, um, you know, like I said, we use traveling Ruby for and that's a much bigger binary than I imagine something like uh, MRuby would be. Yeah, the, the other downside with something like traveling Ruby is actually very limiting too because you're kind of limited to the Rubies they've pre-compiled to. So mm -hmm. if there's been a new security release, like hope they also update their binaries or you're also limited to the native gems that you want to use. Um, and if you want to use a different version of, like, say, Nokugiri, and they don't have it pre-compiled for you, you're kind of SOL, right? Like, I, I think it's a great project, but, like, I don't know if MRI is a good target for actually doing these things with the way it is going with Rails and, and kind of the way it's built, right? Um, MRuby itself is a much smaller API, and, and one of the things that is great about it is that since Matt's has already done the MRI thing before he wrote MRuby, he was able to, when designing the C API, make changes that would be like kind of game-breaking, like ecosystem-level changes that he couldn't really actually do comfortably right. in MRI without causing a huge kerfuffle, um, whether it's the right decision or not. And so, like the C API in MRuby is much cleaner and it's much smaller. And in addition to that, the standard library they have like these kind of core libraries, but any OS-specific thing is kind of not bundled in by default. So it's meant to actually be used as well on like IoT kind of devices and other things. So it is a low memory footprint, like much smaller kind of thing. And so ARM might not have the same kind of OS level things that you would expect on a desktop. Um, so by default, it can't comfortably like build all those things in. Um, in addition, like you don't have to put in things that you don't want. Like, so when you use MRI, you kind of just get like this kitchen sink of stuff. And I think the standard library is very useful for a lot of things. Um, and so it's nice to be able to just like require this thing and now you have it, right? right. Um, and in MRuby, it's like, oh, I don't actually have that stuff by default. But the flip side is when you're shipping a binary, you probably want to keep it small too. So you can just be like, 
oh, I actually need these extensions to array, so I'm going to pull in this like array extension mgem, uh, mgem being like basically the gem equivalent in, mm -hmm. in mruby. But I actually am not doing very much with like hashes or something, so I'm not going to pull that in. I'm not going to pull any of these other things in that are bundled with like the mruby core, but you don't have to pull those things in. Cool. So it allows you to keep a, things significantly smaller. And the other nice thing for boot up time is that you have no require because all the stuff. So when you build mruby, it um, you can run it interpreted, but when you're shipping binaries, you don't want to do that. Like you don't want to not precompile the the code. So if you're having a single binary, you want to have all that stuff precompiled, and that means they're at runtime. You don't actually have to require anything because all that stuff is loaded in memory. Cool. Um, does that mean that the compiler is able to uh, do like dead code elimination passes? So so like actual classes from the standard library that you're not using can just be fully removed from the final binary? Uh, I'm not familiar enough with the actual like build compiler to know what optimizations it's actually making. Okay, fair enough. So there is an MRuby gems. Uh, there is mgems, and there's basically like an mgem list. So it's really just a GitHub repository where people commit, like, this file mm -hmm. is this thing, and it is actually this other GitHub repo. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not nearly as formalized. Right. But so I guess my point, like, because Ruby is mostly Ruby. Like, if it, presumably you could just take, a, 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 a like, a, the source code of some random gem and it might work, right? Yeah, so I, like, I, I've had conversations with Yehuda about this um, actually in Japan at Kagi last year, and he was telling me about like, this whole universal JS thing. And you know, there's kind of like a similar thing, and I guess in Ruby, because you have like JRuby, and I don't know, is Rubinia still a thing? <laughs> I can never tell. Technically, um, yes. I don't think anybody is like, well, actually I, trying to Well, I know Brian's still working on it, and there's actually, like, he has customers on Heroku running it. Um, but I definitely don't hear about it nearly as much these days. We don't support it in Rails um, anymore. So, but so you have like different VMs for sure, and I think Ruby's been lucky to have a bunch of VMs. Um, and then you also have like MRuby, which is again another limited subset of like things. Um, and I think like po even porting stuff from standard lib is non-trivial sometimes in MRuby because the amount of things that you assume you are not using in standard lib is actually like a huge amount of things, right? Like that you're, that's already like pulled in or you assume you have um, in an MRuby since it's meant to be much smaller, like you don't actually have a lot of the stuff. Like how many things rely on IO in the Ruby space? It's just like a ton of stuff. But, and even if you have like, they, there are equivalents, but they usually are like simplified versions. Oh, okay, so they're not API compatible. Yeah, so a lot of them are very similar API wise, but it doesn't necessarily mean like they are API compatible. So, for instance, there's an MRuby IO library that tries to mimic like file and the IO class and, and stuff like that. But the popen method does not support nearly as many of the permutations that the actual like standard library sure. supports. Um, and so you get stuck with like those kind of gotchas. Like regex is not built into MRuby. Like you have to pull in a separate library for that. But that's, that's what I was going to get at, right? Because there, there's been a lot of talk of, and I don't think we would ever see regex in particular, but of having a lot of standard library just get moved into gems. And that would presumably help if we wanted to have a universal Ruby. That would presumably help that, right? Because it could just be provided by a library. It's provided by a gem in MRI, and somebody could port that gem to MRuby. Yeah, except a lot of the standard library is built in C, right? And so then it relies on the C API, and you pretty much cannot just... Right, well, I'm, I don't mean necessarily, like, literally copy-paste the code, but build something that is API compatible. 
Uh, I mean, potentially. I, I mean, I, I think moving standard library into gems is a much more complicated project than people give it credit for. Yeah. And um, well, you just move it into another directory and then yeah. put it on Ruby gems, no problem. Uh, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, pulling in Ruby gems is also not a trivial yeah. uh, cost at runtime either. At Aaron's keynote in RailsConf, he's going to talk about kind of the regression in 2.3 with the did you mean gem. Right. But it's not did you mean gem's fault. It's like the actual Ruby gem stuff. Uh, and there are definitely like non-trivial things about all that. Right. But potentially, yes, I, I think it could help make that easier. I mean, do you think there's value in there being like a, a central repository of gems that are known to work on both MRuby and MRI? Uh, yeah, I think that'd be actually really useful. It'd be really nice if there are things like that. But uh, I don't know if I'm interested in that as much as... Uh, since talking to Yehuda in Japan, I've been interested in, I, I think one of the things that you get to do with MRuby that you don't get to do as easily with MRI is you get to kind of relook at things and say, do we want to do the same thing or can we do something new that's better? Sure. Um, and one of those things that I think is very interesting and promising is, uh, I, I know you've been working a bunch on things in Rust and um, I think with stuff like Servo, there's this chance in MRuby to support Windows in a much better way than MRI does. Right. And I think that that's definitely a really important story if you care about command line applications, right? Like if Heroku, which we aren't, but if we were to say use something like MRuby CLI, at some point, like we'd want it to have good Windows support, right? Right. Like that's really important out of the gate for anything that is going to be doing this. And I think Rust, with the ability for us to pull in Rust for this ecosystem, you can basically leverage all these system level programmers and people who know what they're doing. And because of Servo, they have to work on Windows. Right. And so uh, this is the thing I've been working on with Yehuda is to basically pull in, use Rust and crates and Rust is crates modules to basically build the foundation of like the native level IO and other things like socket that don't necessarily work super well today uh, on Windows in the current ecosystem, and huh. that applies to both MRI and MRuby. Cool. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. I think we should probably wrap up here. Is there is there anything that you want to plug or that you're super excited about that you'd be remiss if we didn't talk about? I run a conference called Keep Ruby Weird, uh, which is happening at the end of October. We have not announced <laughs> we have not announced dates yet, but I believe it is going to be on the 28th because we've put money down on a venue so <laughs> of, of what uh, month is this october okay so we tend to do it at the end of october every year uh mm -hmm. and we try to for consistent i feel like consistency is important so mm -hmm. it's good to have it in roughly the same time uh <laughs> and please come submit your weird talks uh one of the one of the great things about organizing this conference uh and it's also a pain in the butt is to have to read through all the proposals but since we have this weird theme it's always neat to see what the community comes up with so please come and submit your weird proposals um so you can make caleb in my life terrible <laughs> and if you're interested in going to that conference check out keeprubyweird.com yes and the tickets sell out really fast so if you notice they're on sale or follow them on twitter keep ruby weird yeah uh, they sell out really fast so if you're interested in going to that conference you should jump on those I can attest it is one of the best conferences that I've been to. So oh, yeah. It's go. also in Austin, Texas. I uh, guess I forgot to mention. Good to mention, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 66. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.